Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like updating turbines at one of our Indiana wind farms and producing more oil and gas with fewer operational emissions in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. Every day, our world gets a little more connected, but a little further apart. But then there are moments that remind us to be more human. Thank you for calling Amica Insurance. Hey, uh, I was just in an accident. Don't worry, we'll get you taken care of. At Amica, we understand that looking out for each other isn't new or groundbreaking. It's human. Amica, empathy is our best policy. It's Friday, November 22nd, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Each week we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters. You can find us online at climatedesk.org, and you can follow us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. This week on the podcast, I chatted with Simon Singh. He's a science writer with a PhD in particle physics and a BAFTA award for his BBC documentary Fermat's Last Theorem. He's also known for the bestseller The Code Book, which was turned into a TV series called The Science of Secrecy. So he's no stranger to both television and math, a combination that led him to write a book that just came out on The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets. So here's what he had to say about The Simpsons and math. But then you realise there are lots of mathematicians on The Simpsons. Obviously, they're no longer mathematicians. They're now comedy writers. Uh, but they still have a great affection towards numbers and geometry. And the way they express that is by making lots and lots of mathematical references. Um, throughout the last 25 seasons of The Simpsons, there's everything from calculus to Pythagoras' theorem, from Euler's identity to perfect numbers. It's all there. It's all there in, in The Simpsons. So, Indre, I think this is objective proof that math nerds, which I guess many of the Simpsons writers are, or at least more than in most shows, math nerds rule the universe because these guys, they could have been working for Intel. They probably could have been doing incredibly sophisticated stuff that I can't understand uh, with codes and Internet security for like the Pentagon. Instead, they decided to make you laugh and they're good at it. Yeah, and not only are they good at it, but they've managed to write the longest running scripted TV show in the history of television. I mean, they've totally nailed it. <laughs> um, and Simon had some pretty interesting insights into why a background in math is particularly useful for writers of an animated sitcom like The Simpsons. And I have to say that I haven't had that much fun learning math in, well, ever. Okay, well, maybe you will not be the only one. <laughs> So that'll be our conversation for today. But first, since we're about to get into the week of Thanksgiving, um, at least for our American listeners, I wondered whether there was any science of Thanksgiving that we should touch upon. I mean, I know certainly there's stuff that we can talk about in terms of eating and dieting and, and food related stuff. But what about the actual meaning of the holiday? As you all know, Thanksgiving, by definition, is about counting your blessings, you know, being grateful. And it feels good to be grateful. But I wonder if there's any scientific evidence that it actually makes a difference. Is there any measurable impact of gratitude? 
Well, Indre, yes, there is. Thanks for the setup. And I just want to say that on this show, you will not get a science of L-tryptophan story because I'm so sick of hearing that story every Thanksgiving. There's much more interesting scientific things we can say about Thanksgiving, including... So here's the thing. Science says... Science says... Thanksgiving is good for you. And being thankful is just good generally because, this is what the researchers say, it promotes pro-social behaviors that tie you to your community. It also is related to better coping strategies. And it turns out, we found out, there's a large social science literature on this, on gratitude. Um, And so how do you study it? You need surveys. And so people are asked questions like, you know, how much do you agree with this following statement? I always express my thanks to people who care about me or another statement, when I look at my life, I find many things to be grateful for. And I just want to tell you one study where they did this kind of thing. It was in the Journal of Adolescence just this year. And they found that higher levels of this self-reported gratitude in at-risk African-American youth living in the South. This this feeling of gratitude was tied to them having better family relationships and more interest in school. Not surprising, but also it was also tied to taking less risks. Do, in other words, not wanting to do drugs, not wanting to have sex while in high school. Uh, the correlations weren't super strong, but they're there. So indeed, Thanksgiving and thankfulness are good for you. Wait, Chris, that seems really bizarre. So if you're thankful, you're less likely to have sex in high school. I mean, these things seem unrelated uh, yeah, to me. Yeah, correlation, but... not causation. I mean, you know, that's the thing is that I, I, I don't think the thankfulness is doing it, but it, the thankfulness is, I suppose, signaling some other state of being well-adjusted or okay with yourself. Uh, and I, that's what I, and I'm actually confused a little bit about where gratitude comes from because on the one hand, they describe it in the research as an affect, so an emotion, so you're just naturally thankful, uh, it is a disposition. But to me, to be thankful, you have to take a lot of intellectual steps. You have to have perspective on your life. You have to look at the look at it in the big picture, take the bird's eye view, and say, oh, I'm pretty lucky, aren't I? Compared, and, and that, I think, is not an emotional process. So I'm wondering where it actually comes from in this research, too. Yeah, it's a really good point, too. I mean, I always think that um, a lot of parents try to teach their kids, you know, gratitude. That's part of the point of sitting down for Thanksgiving dinner and everybody telling everybody what, you know, they're thankful for. It seems like that's something that we can teach or we can learn um, rather than just a personality trait that's ingrained. Um, so, you know, is, is the, it, it, seems, it seems odd that they're calling it an emotion. Is it more like optimism or just sort of a general satisfaction with life? Or is there something special about, you know, really thinking that you're a lucky person and identifying as such? Yeah, I think that uh, I want to read more about this and I don't have the answer. But I think the sense is that some people are just more sociable, uh, you know, more more empathetic and gratitude, I think, is getting wrapped up in that. And it's gratitude is one of the things that helps you bond with neighbors and helps keep a community tied together. So I think it's going in that direction. So that might be somewhat dispositional. Well, in any case, it's kind of compelling, and it, it does suggest that maybe there's a benefit to uh, sitting down and being thankful. But there's also a negative side of Thanksgiving, and that's, of course, the incidence of kitchen fires that seems to increase around, you know, when you have too many cooks in the kitchen. Especially if you let me anywhere near anything. <laughs> <laughs> um, and, of course, uh, foodborne illness when you're preparing poultry, if you don't do it very often. Uh, so there's there's quite a bit of science related to how we can prevent ourselves from getting food poisoning uh, during Thanksgiving. Well, let's let's hear about that, because I definitely want to come out of Thanksgiving strong so we can keep recording this show. 
Okay, well, you know, there are a couple of things that I found out in some of my research about this topic. And um, one of them is that, you know how sometimes recipes tell you to rinse your turkey or wash your turkey before putting it in the oven? You know, even Julia Child recommended it. Um, it turns out that that's actually a really bad idea. And the U.S. Department of Agriculture discourages it because when you put your turkey or chicken or whatever under the tap, you're spreading salmonella and other pathogens all over your kitchen and down your drain. Um, um, and it's it's just a bad idea. So, you know, we should follow the Jacques Pepin model, which is not to rinse your turkey, for one. Okay. So th- th- there's that. And then there's the science of, I mean, let's face it, we eat this stuff not only on the day of when we hope that the turkey has been prepared properly, which is itself a highly laborious process, but then we eat it for many days after. So is that all Okay. Yeah, no, I mean, a lot of people do get sick with those leftovers. So uh, WebMD actually has an interesting algorithm to keep in mind, the 224 rule, which is that, you know, you should put any leftovers into the refrigerator no more than two hours after cooking them. Um, You should keep them in a two-inch shallow pan so that they're evenly cooled as opposed to, like, you know, in a massive vat. Um, And you should eat them all or freeze them within four days. So that's the 224 rule uh, that seems to help in keeping us from getting sick. Right. So one of the big things with Thanksgiving is to remember that while you're in your food coma after eating, you should actually get up and put all the stuff in the refrigerator and not leave it sitting out for six hours, which is... (laughs) Yeah. And there's one more thing that always surprises me, which is that people think, you know, fruits and vegetables, those, you know, have no bacteria. They're always safe to eat. But it turns out that a lot of people do get sick uh, from eating fruits and vegetables that weren't washed well, um, either because they have pesticides, which is a long term thing. But more importantly, usually because they have bacteria, the same kinds of bacteria that are around, um, you know, on poultry, maybe not to the same extent, uh, but they're there. They're they're in the fruits and veggies. So make sure you wash those too. Okay. So everybody be careful. I, I read that one in six people in the U.S. each year get a foodborne illness. So don't let that be you. Okay, so now with that, let's take a short break. And in just a moment, we'll be back with my conversation with Simon Singh. Welcome to Inquiring Minds, Simon Singh. Hello. It's good to be talking to you. It's great to have you on the show today. And I really enjoyed your book and thinking about it. Um, But I wanted to start off with first, the pot calling the kettle black a little bit. This is coming from a neuroscientist opera singer. So take it with a grain of salt. But you certainly have an unusual background with a PhD in particle physics from Cambridge, uh, and then a career in television and um, writing for science. So can you talk a little bit about what led you to do the PhD, and then what led you to leave science behind for greener pastures? Um, yeah, I mean, I mean, work, just working backwards, I mean, I think everybody who works in science communication um, probably came from somewhere else. You know, I think, um, I don't think when we're young, we don't necessarily dream of being a science writer. Um, and so uh, in my case, I dreamt of being a scientist. I wanted to be a physicist. I wanted to um, make great discoveries. And so I did a degree in physics. And I did a PhD in physics and I spent time at CERN. And I, you know, that was the kind of one track mind I had. Uh, and then I just reached a point where I could see people around me who were a bit quicker than me, a bit sharper than me. Um, and I could just see that they were going to be the people who would make great discoveries. And, and it wasn't likely to be me. Um, and so I decided to think, well, what, what else do I enjoy doing? What else will keep me close to science? And what other skills do I have? Um, kind of what, what am I built to do? Um, 
and and that's when I moved into journalism because I you know I love television and the first job I had in journalism was with the BBC working on BBC TV science shows. Um, I love teaching. I love writing. So again, a lot of my work, I suppose, in a way, is teaching, you know, explaining science to people. Um, yeah. So so yeah, it, it, I've really found what I'm supposed to be doing. Really, I, I've, I'm very fortunate in that. Uh, I think a lot of people search for 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 what career is best for them and, and I've I've certainly found that. And and sure enough, you know, the people that I did work with back at CERN, um, you know, I, I watched the uh, discovery of the Higgs boson and one of the the leaders, one of the group leaders, uh, is a woman called Fabiola who was working uh on you know on my experiment or our experiment back at CERN. So it's great to see what they're they're doing and and you know to some extent I'm a bit sad that I'm not part of that anymore. Um, but I, I, I know that I did the right thing and, and have great fun. I really, really enjoy it. It's a real privilege to be able to uh, you know, learn new stuff all the time and then to be able to figure out how to explain it to other people. That's a great answer. And I'm going to put that in my back pocket and plagiarize you once in a while, if you don't mind. <laughs> <laughs> Feel free. So you've also gone on the record questioning the science that's appear that appears in certain you know television or entertainment media. Uh, so I wanted to ask you how important do you think it is that the science is right when it comes to television shows or movies um, versus the argument that really you know entertainment is first and foremost the story has to be king and the science should only serve the story insofar as it can. Uh, it it depends on specific examples, really. Um, I'm I, I'm not too bothered by Hollywood physics. I'm not too bothered by writers taking a bit of license in the physics that they might use in order to tell a story and so on. I, I, you know, I, I had fun with Katie Malua, who's a singer. Who, who made a slight slip up in one of her lyrics. And, and that was really just me being very playful. And it was a joke and she got the joke and she then re-recorded her song using um, slightly more scientifically accurate lyrics. Uh, but, but when it comes to art, I'm, I'm fairly relaxed. Um, but when it comes to, um, you know, serious journalism, supposedly serious journalism, uh, particularly on issues of health, um, then I'm much more concerned that, that that journalism, the facts in those articles should be accurate because when it comes to health, uh, you know, we're looking at people's um, well-being and the decisions they make may well be influenced by bad scientific journalism, which can do themselves harm and their families harm. And of course, you've gotten into uh, some hot water with your article, Beware the Spinal Trap, about chiropractic practices. Um, so can you tell us a little bit about that experience and you know, how it's affected your work and um, essentially what impact the entire suit has had on um, how people approach chiropractic medicine in the UK? Yeah, well, I, I suppose you know, just going back a little bit before that, um, my, my whole career in science journalism was very much about celebrating science. You know, Fermat's Last Theorem is a book about uh, America. I think it's called Fermat's Enigma. Is a book about isn't mathematics wonderful? And isn't this a heroic story of mathematical triumph? And um, Big Bang was about the fact that we're tiny animals on a tiny planet with tiny brains that we know so much about the whole universe, and let's celebrate that. But then I took a slightly different tack with my the, the, my, my previous book, which was a book called Trick or Treatment, which I co-authored with a professor of alternative medicine, Edzard Ernst, the world's first professor of complementary and alternative medicine. And um, he and I 
decided to look at all of the evidence. You know, there's so much bad journalism. There's so much misinformation uh, in print and online and everywhere else. So many dodgy celebrity endorsements. Um, let's look at the actual evidence for alternative therapies and present the public with the real evidence of effectiveness, also the evidence of ineffectiveness and the evidence of potential harm. Um, and once we'd written the book, um, I think it was published in 2008, so it's going back a few years now. Once you write any book, you want people to know the book exists. So you write articles, you give interviews, you um, you know, you just go out there and bang the drum and say, look, you know, here is a book you might be interested. In. And um, I wrote an article um, just after the book was published for the Guardian newspaper, one of our national newspapers here in the UK. Um, and the article was written during what was the British National Chiropractic Awareness Week. And so I thought, well, well you know, you want people to be aware of chiropractic. I'm going to make people aware of chiropractic. And I pointed out the lack of evidence for chiropractors, the possible risks and so on. Um, and I was just completely astonished that a few weeks later, I received a threat of, of uh, a libel action against me. You know, it really was, for me, the most obvious article to write. Uh, my co-author, Edzard Ernst, had read through the article. You know, we, you know, we always would share articles and check each other's work and kind of see... Um, if either of us had missed a trick or anything, so I thought the article was fine. He thought the article was fine. The Guardian sub-editor thought the article was fine. The Guardian legal desk thought the article was fine. No, none of us really. It just came out of the blue that the British Chiropractic Association were threatening me with libel. I just couldn't believe it. And then a few weeks later, the libel threat turned into an actual formal uh, claim against me. Uh, a few weeks later, you know, we both had lawyers and we were going at it uh, hammer and tongs to try and work out whether they were going to win and sue me for libel or whether I was going to be able to fend off this action. So what was the ultimate result? Well, the ultimate result went on for about two years. Um, initially, it looked like I was going to lose. Uh, initially, it, it, it's really messy. It's really miserable because it comes down to, well, you know, for example, evidence. You know, you may, ha you may have a certain view of evidence depending on the context. Uh, and I may have a certain view of evidence and other people will as well. Um, and I said that chiropractors had no evidence to be able to claim to treat colic, let's say, colic in babies. Now, I, I just don't see any evidence. Uh, now, the chiropractors said you can't say there's no evidence because, um, you know, we treat children all the time. And we see the evidence with our very own eyes. Now, I would say that's just anecdote. You know, you don't know whether you know, if that baby improved. You don't know if that baby improved because of your intervention or because, um, you know, the child was going to recover anyway. So for me, that is not evidence. For the chiropractor, it is evidence. The question was, what would the judge think? And initially, the judge just went against me completely and said, not only was I wrong in my assessment of the evidence, but I was actually calling the chiropractors fraudulent. But mm. I said they don't have evidence. They know they don't have evidence and they're ripping people off. Um, and whereas I was saying um, they don't have worthwhile evidence and they're a bit reckless and incompetent, frankly. Um, so the judge went against me. It looked like I was going to lose. I asked for permission to appeal um, and I was rejected twice. And then the third time I was given permission to appeal, uh, I, I went to appeal. 
Uh, and by this time, what was fantastic was that the, the skeptic movement, um, the grassroots, grassroots skeptics, uh, not just in the UK, but from Australia to America to Norway, to Germany, um, were, were saying this is ridiculous. If, if a journalist can't challenge a medical intervention on you know, a matter of public interest, children's health, this is a very sad state of affairs. And uh, you know, bloggers were coming to my rescue because bloggers were also being threatened with libel. Other people, uh, Ben Goldacre, uh, a cardiologist called Peter Wilmser, they all started saying that they'd been threatened with libel. And it was clear that English libel law was being used to, to silence criticism. And um, so by the time it came to the Court of Appeal, we had an incredibly powerful Court of Appeal. It was the Lord Chief Justice, the Master of the Rolls, Sir Stephen Sedley. Um, the, the British, the English judiciary uh, were clearly taking this very seriously and they ruled in my favour, um, at which point, uh, the, the, you know, the, my meaning of the article was what I had intended and essentially that was defensible. So the BCA backed away. Um, and it was a miserable couple of years, you know, apart from the fact that, you know, you find out who your friends are. And uh, when it comes to the rational world, the scientific world, the skeptical world, I, I, I knew I had a lot of friends by, by the end of two years. Um, but, but the good thing that came out of it was, well, two good things. One, uh, people were a lot more aware of, of chiropractic and their, their dodgy claims. Uh, you know, I'd written one article. I don't think many people would have read it, but once I got sued for libel, a lot of people had read it. Um, and secondly, there was a, a, a campaign to rebalance English libel law because for too long, it's been too easy for, for, for claimants to shut up their critics. The rich and the powerful, large corporations, even Russian oligarchs would come to England to sue other people in Russia because our libel courts were so friendly to what's called libel tourism. Um, but this campaign started and now, in fact, this year, we, we have a new Defamation Act, the Defamation Act 2013, uh, which is which is a much fairer balance uh, between the right to reputation. You know, we've all got a reputation. We don't want that to be besmirched unfairly, but also the right to free speech and the right to criticize. And um, the support from America has been really important in that battle because, uh, for example, President Obama passed a law, I think probably in 2012, maybe 2011, where he said, if you're an American and you get sued in England, don't worry, because we have no respect for English libel law and any judgment will not have any effect in, in, in America. And for, for Brits, you know, that really made us wake up. You know, our laws must be in a really shoddy state if the Americans are having to invent their own laws to block our laws. So that was very important in, in making British politicians uh, realize that things had to change. Wow. Well, you know, I'm sorry that you had to go through such turmoil, but it sounds like the ultimate result is extremely positive for, for a, a lot of people. And positive for me as well, because, you know, I've learned a huge amount about libel law. <laughs> I've learned a lot about law itself in general. I've learned a lot about political processes. How do you change things? Uh, you know, how do you work with government? How do you work with political parties to affect change? Uh, you know, the, the campaign side of it was a real eye, eye opener to me. How do we how do we use online resources to develop a campaign? And so. Um, yeah, it, you know, it, it, it was miserable at times. And, and my wife was incredibly supportive. She's a journalist. so She understood what, what, what it was all about and why we were doing this. Um, 
but you know at the end of it you look back and you realize that that actually a lot of good has come out of it in terms of free speech but also in terms of just uh you know the things i've learned as i said i used to be just about celebrating science and i still love to celebrate science um but it's also uh important to take on bad science and pseudoscience when it raises its head well, thank you for that. And I, I do want to turn to a slightly lighter topic. Um, and that, of course, is the subject of your latest book, The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets. And I wanted to start out first by asking you, how did you figure out the connection between The Simpsons and math? I mean, when I watched the cartoons, you know, it didn't occur to me until I read your book that there are so many of these references. Um, so how did you discover them? Yes. Yeah, so, so in fact, this is, this is the book that I've been wanting to write. Um... For about 10 years, I first um, contacted the writing team behind The Simpsons about 10 years ago um, when I spotted that there's an equation in an episode called The Wizard of Evergreen Terrace. And there's an equation on a blackboard. Nobody else probably noticed it. Um, well, maybe a few people noticed it. But I noticed it because the equation relates to Fermat's Last Theorem, which is you know the first book I'd ever written uh, uh, as a writer. It was all about Fermat's Last Theorem. This equation about Fermat's Last Theorem is in The Simpsons. And I can't miss things like that. You know, they, they, they hit me straight between the eyes. So um, uh, when I saw that, I, I, I found out that the writer behind that particular reference is a chap called David X. Cohen. Um, David X. Cohen has written papers about mathematics. Um, and, um, you know, I thought, well, that's interesting. There's a, there's a writer on The Simpsons who loves mathematics and he loves mathematics so much that he put an equation in this episode. That's very nice. Um, but then you realize there are lots of mathematicians on The Simpsons. Obviously, they're no longer mathematicians. They're now comedy writers. Uh, but they still have a great affection towards numbers and geometry. And the way they express that is by making lots and lots of mathematical references. Um, throughout the last 25 seasons of The Simpsons, there's everything from calculus to Pythagoras' theorem, from Euler's identity to perfect numbers. It's all there. It's all there in, in The Simpsons. And so why do you think, is it that comedy writers in general come from math backgrounds or tech backgrounds, you know, backgrounds that are highly complex? Or is this unique to The Simpsons? I think, you know, the, the starting assumption that people have is that mathematicians are not funny. So, so no mathematician could ever, ever be involved in comedy. That's, that's people's first assumption. Um, and so we have to go from there to the fact that they're so massively overrepresented on the writing team of The Simpsons. Um, and that, you know, there are lots of comedians who have mathematical backgrounds. I think people just aren't necessarily aware of them. Um, you know, people like Gary Shandling um, was an engineer at Drexel. Uh, people don't realize that. Um, Johnny Carson, people don't realize that Johnny Carson loved astronomy. He was he was an amateur astronomer, but he was an amateur astronomer of the highest caliber. Um, people like uh, Tom Lehrer, Tom Lehrer, people may remember Tom Lehrer. Um, he, he's, you know, the greatest musical satirist of the 20th century uh, and a professor of mathematics. And he wrote the Elements song. That's it, exactly. People will know him. And, he, and I think he wrote a song called New Math as well. Uh, so he's written about science, about math and about everything else. Uh, in the UK, we have a couple of very, very formidable comedians, a chap called Dave Gorman, uh, who is a maths graduate from Manchester University and Dara O'Brien, who studied mathematics and physics in Dublin. And so th there are a lot of mathematically minded comedians around. And I think The Simpsons is exceptional 
in having so many of them. Uh, uh, the Simpsons and also Futurama. The book has four chapters about Futurama because it's the sister series of The Simpsons and a lot of the writers on The Simpsons write for Futurama and vice versa. Um, and, and why is that the case? Um, partly, I think it's because you know, mathematicians know other mathematicians and they maybe kind of wrote them in. Uh, so, for example, we have a, a writer called Ken Keeler who uh, has a PhD in applied mathematics who'd written papers with a chap called Jeff Westbrook, who is a professor at Yale. And uh, when one of them became a writer on The Simpsons, it was maybe natural that the other one would follow. Um, a lot of the writers went to Harvard and uh, were part of Harvard Lampoon, the the comedy writing uh, group within Harvard. And so, again, when one of them joined The Simpsons, it was quite natural that others might as well and, and were perhaps from the same department of mathematics. Um, so there's a bit of a snowball effect. Uh, one writer, you know, I did say to, to um, the writers, look, you're all here at The Simpsons. Why did you all end up working on Friends or all end up working on Seinfeld or something else? And, um, and they said, well, well, Al Jean in particular said that as a, as a mathematician, every line you write is, is perfect. Every line that you deduce from that first line is perfect. Uh, ultimately, your conclusion will be perfect. You have complete control over every bit of mathematics you create. And similarly, when you when you work in animation, every line you write will be read perfectly by the actors. Every image you storyboard will be recreated perfectly by the animators. And so animation is a bit like mathematics, whereas real action comedy, real life comedy um, is more messy it's not as perfect as mathematics and so he says that animation is a mathematician's medium so that's one possible explanation why they've all gravitated towards the simpsons and futurama so we should send all the biologists and psychologists to write for 30 rock <laughs> well yeah, Where... yeah no, and, and, well he, he says you know that those, those that's where the scientists might go because science <laughs> is messy and complicated and, and you're right that, that's where well, that's his theory. I have a whole chapter in the book where I, I talk to all the different writers. I spent I spent a week with them last year, and um, I, 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 you know, they all had different theories and different views about the relationship between mathematics and comedy. Um, and I don't think anybody has the complete answer, but they they put forward some interesting ideas. Yeah, I actually loved that chapter. Um, but I also wanted to turn to the fact that mathematics is really about solving problems and thinking of an insight um, and so are puzzles and so are jokes. And so there's a real relationship, as you mentioned in your book, between comedy, which is about, you know, the unexpected answer to um, an expected dilemma and, um, and math. Yeah, I, I, think, I think there's definitely a link between puzzles, a good puzzle and a good joke. Uh, I, I used to do a TV show in the UK called Mind Games, where I would offer two teams a puzzle and... But they, they were the kind of puzzles where you would kick yourself because maybe the way I would explain the puzzle would set you thinking in a certain road. But in order to get the right answer, you had to make a slight detour and look at it from a different angle. And then you'd get that aha moment. So the aha moment in solving a puzzle is a bit like the tee hee hee moment in getting a punchline of a joke. You know, punchlines often come in from a different direction. It's that surprise that that makes us laugh. Um, it's also to do with maybe a, a break in the logic. You follow a logical path and somebody tells you a shaggy dog story. But when you realize the punchline, you realize you've been basing your narrative on a false bit of logic. 
And it's that false logic that makes you laugh. Um, and again, uh, you know, mathematicians obviously love logic and they love playing with logic and maybe bending logic and perhaps breaking logic. And um, that leads to the illogical and the illogical thing can often be humorous. And to capitalize on that connection, I think you're the only author I've ever read who puts exams into a nonfiction book. And uh, I was, you know, very surprised when I got to the first one. And, you know, your examinations really are about, do you get the joke? You know, here's how funny do you think this particular math joke is? And I have to say, I, I got to about the third one, and I still scored okay. But then ah, good, <laughs> it good. got a bit beyond me. Yeah, there, there are, so, so the thing is, there are so many mathematical jokes you know this is a book about the simpsons the simpsons are funny it's a book about mathematics there are mathematics jokes uh, a long tradition of them uh, over the decades so how do i get these mathematical jokes into the book without well you know without laboring i suppose and 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 i thought well actually you know it's a way of it's a way of probing your mathematical knowledge because if you get the joke then you must get the mathematics behind the joke so it's a test of your sense of humor and it's a test of your mathematical knowledge. And so, there, as you say, there are I think, five exam papers and they get harder and harder. And I think most people will find the first three quite funny or you know, at least grown. Um, and the fourth one, a few people may have trouble with. The fifth one, I, I suspect n- you know, very, very few people will get very few, few, few of those jokes. They're very obscure. They're based on... Um, incredibly complex kind of graduate level mathematical knowledge, um, and, and the, I think the, I think they're funny, but they're funny because they're so baffling, <laughs> um, and so that's kind of why they're there. Um, I, I did an online quiz. In fact, people can probably look it up. It was on the Guardian website. If you look up Guardian Simon Singh mathematical jokes, um, people can try this out for themselves. They can you get a joke. There are three different punchlines, and it's the same principle. If you get the jokes and if you know the maths, you'll work out the punchline. If not, then then you're, you're missing one of them, and, and you, know, you can score anything between one and ten. But um, yeah, that, that 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 was a a nice way to introduce those mathematical jokes uh, into the book. Yeah, it was very clever. Um, so I want to talk about two episodes in particular that you describe in your book, and the first one is really. Um, Homer's solution to Fermat's enigma. Uh, can you just describe for our, our listeners, you know, this, the premise and why that particular solution was so interesting? Yeah. So, so, so Pierre de Fermat lived 350 years ago, and he was a French mathematician, and he discovered that you'll, you know, we can find a square number plus a square number equaling a square number. So three squared which is nine plus four squared, which is 16. Okay. Nine and 16 is 25. That's five squared. So three squared and four squared equals five squared. That's fairly straightforward. But can you find a cube number plus a cube number equaling a cube number? Can you find a a fifth power plus a fifth power equaling a fifth power? Um, Fermat said you couldn't. He couldn't find any solutions, and, and he went one step further. In the margin of a book, he wrote a very, very famous note that says, he said, I have a truly marvelous proof, uh, a demonstratio memorabile, he wrote in Latin. I have a really great proof that you will never be able to find a solution. But unfortunately, hank uh, marginis exiguatus non caparet. Unfortunately, this margin is too narrow to contain my proof. So I can prove this, but I can't have the space to write down the proof. And then he dropped dead or a few, you know, a few years later, he dropped dead. 
And people found this note and it was infuriating. You know, Fermat says he can prove you'll never find a solution, but we, we don't have that proof. And so for 350 years, people looked for the proof and eventually uh, uh, an English mathematician working at Princeton, uh, Andrew Wiles, he's now Sir Andrew Wiles, um, he's been knighted by the Queen. Um, he, he, he discovered a proof. So he proved that Fermat was right. You will never find an nth power plus an nth power equaling an nth power where n's bigger than two. That's what Fermat said. That's what Andrew Wiles said. And yet in this episode of The Simpsons, uh, The Wizard of Evergreen Terrace, Homer writes on the board, some number to the power 12 plus another number to the power 12 equals a third number to the power 12. And that, that cannot exist according to Fermat, according to Wiles. And yet if you check Homer's solutions, on your phone calculator, Homer's right. So, so what? You know, this is bizarre. This is incredible. Um, and that, that's what first caught my attention when I, when I was watching The Simpsons in the context of mathematics. Um, now, the way you resolve this problem is that your phone calculator is not accurate enough to see the error. Um, Homer's discovered what's known as a near miss solution. So it's out by about mm, the 12th decimal place, it, it goes, it, it's flawed. Um, but it's a really clever little mathematical prank put in by David X. Cohen to fool viewers, uh, you know, those viewers quick enough to spot it. Um, and it, it's a lovely little joke about, about Fermat and, and, and the fact there shouldn't be a solution, but Homer's found a solution. So in the book, I, I explain the history of Fermat's last theorem and, and the background to that joke and the background also to David X. Cohen. You know, what, what, what is his, you know, how did he become interested in mathematics? Yeah, I just, I loved the idea of seeing people trying to jot down those numbers and then looking at their calculator and realizing that, you know, Homer might in fact be a mathematical genius. It's just very yeah, well, clever. David X. Cohen was, was so keen on this. He would look on the internet as soon as the episode was broadcast. You know, Has anybody spotted this? Has anybody been fooled? And, and sure enough, there were people on bulletin boards and so on saying, you know, I don't understand what's going on. You know, what, it, 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 yeah, that, I mean, the writers put it there partly for their own fun. You know, they, I say they, they have an affection for mathematics and they do, they, they put these references in for their own uh, benefit, but they also want to see everybody else react to it. They, they, you know, they're speaking, I suppose, to their fellow nerds and geeks, you know, people like me and you and everybody else. Um, you, know, can, you know, have we spotted it as well? Are we, are we in on that joke with David X. Cohen? And, and, you know, I think I would argue that that's part of the success of this show is that there are so many of these interesting references. I mean, I was just watching the opening credits to the Money Bart episode, which I want to talk about next. And, you know, on one of the walls, there's a graffiti that says Banksy. And it's just, you know, it gives you a little tickle of, oh, that's great. <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. It, 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 it is extraordinary. It, um, you know, there are lots of cultural references. There are lots of, um, you know, political references and, and I don't think people will be too surprised by those and, and people may have spotted those. But the mathematics ones have been um, have been hidden for a long time and um, and there are so many of them as well. So I just wanted to turn a little bit to what is soon becoming my favorite episode, which is Money Bart. Um, I happen to marry a baseball aficionado who loves statistics and loves, you know, Michael Lewis and Bill James and this idea that, you know, really there are so many statistics that we can gather from baseball and um, it's, it's endlessly fascinating. And so in this episode, uh, Lisa actually has to coach Bart's baseball team because she needs more sort of extracurricular credits for her college application or her 
high school application. I can't remember which which it is. Um, and so she decides to go after um, the sort of sabermetric uh, route to getting the team to win. So can you just give us a little bit of a description of, of the episode and, and sort of what's particularly clever about it? Yes. Yeah, so, so that episode was written by Tim Long. And Tim is not a mathematician. By you know, It's not he majored in, in college, but he loves mathematics. He loves statistics. He's a big fan of, of baseball statistics and silver and so on. Um, and, uh, and, and, and so it's, in a way, the whole storyline is uh, in praise of a mathematical, rational approach to sport. Uh, because she, you know, she uses statistics to build her team and 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 develop her strategy. Um, but my favourite bit of that episode, the bit I, 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 I emphasise most, um, is that there's a moment when she's in the dugout uh, preparing for a game, and she's surrounded by lots of books. She's swatting up these books through these books, reading reading up on 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 baseball and so on. She's surrounded by all of these books in the dugout, and I think I think the commentator comes up with a line. He says, "You know, I've not seen so many books in a dugout since Einstein went canoeing, or something like that." Um, and one of the well, one of the books is Schrodinger's Bat. Uh, another book is F equals M A. Another book is Bill James's uh, book, book of, of statistics. Um, but one of them has an equation written on it, which um, again, you have to freeze the frame. You have to pause the episode to see this. But the book is entitled E to the I pi plus one equals zero. E to the I pi plus one equals zero. Um, it's a complicated equation. Uh, well, it's complicated and simple it, it, in the same way. Um, but it's known as Euler's identity or Euler's equation. And it's often regarded as the single most beautiful equation in all of mathematics because it's got everything in it. It's got zero and one, which is kind of what you need to build an entire number system. It's got um, I, which is the imaginary number, the square root of negative one. It's got pi which we all know and love, um, fundamental to so much mathematics, uh, and an irrational number as well, of course. And it's got E, which is another irrational number, which is, is, is also central to so much mathematics. And it's all there in one simple equation. I say simple because it's, it's very brief and short, uh, but it's also very subtle and complicated in another way. Um, and it's great to see that appearing in Money Bart. Um, it also appears in another episode, Tree House of Horror 6, where it's just passing through the landscape. Uh, and, you know, you'll never, ever see that. You, you never see this equation on television. I've never, ever seen it anywhere else. But it appears in The Simpsons twice. And, you know, what else I liked about the episode is that it sort of pits the um, sort of logical, statistical, scientific mind of Lisa against the intuitive, emotional, impulsive mind of Bart, uh, because um, she asks him to play, you know, according to what the sabermetrics would predict would win the game. And he decides to just forget what she's saying and go after, you know, the glory the glory hit um, and, you know, ultimately they lose. <laughs> um, and, and, I, and I sort of, first I compare Lisa's view uh, of baseball and Bart's view of baseball with um, someone like Keats, you know, Keats the great poet felt that um, science or analysis or mathematics undermined our appreciation of the world. But, you know, we should just look at a rainbow and stare at it in awe because it's such a beautiful natural object and any effort to try and 
analyze the boat, to look at the frequencies of the light or the angles of refraction, would unweave the rainbow and destroy its beauty. That's Keats's view, and maybe that's Bart's view. That's the kind of analogy or parallel that I draw. Um, whereas Richard Feynman, uh, who's much more like Lisa, um, says, well, look, you know, the more you understand about a rainbow, the more beautiful it becomes. Um, the more you understand about a flower, the more you understand about its relationship with its environment. You understand its colors are there in order to attract a particular insect. You, you learn about how that, 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 that insect pollinates that plant and so on. You know, all of this only increases our appreciation uh, of the beauty of, of any natural object. So, uh, yeah, so it's kind of Lisa and Feynman versus Keats and Bart. And I have to say that reading your book has made me appreciate the beauty of The Simpsons that much more. So thank you. Um, I want to remind our listeners that uh, Simon Singh's book, The Simpsons and Their Mathematical Secrets, is now available for purchase, and I highly recommend it. Simon Singh, thank you very much for being on Inquiring Minds. Uh, my, my pleasure. It's been great talking to you. Thank, thanks a lot. So, Indre, listening to this, I, I couldn't help putting uh, Simon Singh's book in a particular context, which is, I think of it as what I would call the incidental exposure school of science communication. And what that means is that, you know, a lot of people don't get science information naturally because they're always like flipping to the sports channel. So how do you get them to care? Well, you find something they already care about, like the Simpsons or like, you know, with Jennifer Willett's book, The Physics of the Buffyverse or, or Lawrence Krauss's book, The Physics of Star Trek, you get something they're interested in and then you show them that, look, wow, there was science in there. You just didn't know it. So now maybe you'll you'll pay attention. Uh, it's certainly one one approach, uh, somewhat tried and true. I don't know. Do you think that that's a good approach in general? It's certainly what he's doing here. Yeah, I mean, I think it's kind of brilliant because, you know, in a sense that, I, you know, I'm not a I'm not a big math fan. You know, I, I, I had to do it, but I'm, it's, it's not my passion. And so I wouldn't have spent that much time thinking about mathematical equations if I hadn't read his book. But now then going going back and watching the show, I mean, it certainly not only en enhances my view of the show, but I'm not going to forget Fermat's last theorem again. Now it's ingrained in my head. So it's been very effective for me, at least. And I suspect that, you know, a lot of people might have the same reaction. Yes. No, I didn't know what it was either. I mean, I knew of it a lot, a lot. But now, thanks to The Simpsons, I know what I cannot do with math. Yep. <laughs> okay, so that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. To find us online, visit climatedesk.org. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and on Facebook at slash Inquiring Minds Podcast. Inquiring Minds is produced by Adam Isaac in cooperation with Climate Desk, a journalistic collaboration that includes The Atlantic, the Center for Investigative Reporting, The Guardian, Grist, Mother Jones, Slate, and Wired. Our music is provided by award-winning producer Rian Sheehan. And we're your hosts. I'm Chris Mooney. And I'm Indre Viscontis. Across America, BP supports more than 275,000 jobs to keep energy flowing. Jobs like building grid-scale solar energy in Ohio and producing gas with fewer operational emissions in Texas. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. <laughs> 